Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I guess this was in early 2016. I had thrown out all my belongings, and I was living from Airbnb to Airbnb. And I remember 11 o'clock at night, maybe midnight, I was asleep. My friend Melanie Nakin, who's the author of Otherhood was a best-selling book. She calls me and she says, you got to get up. Uh, there's um, John Levy is having a dinner. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, you know his dinners. And I did know his dinners, actually. They're very famous. And he, he'll describe them in a second. They're the wildest dinners you could imagine. And he's like, you got to get up and let's go to his dinner and then the salon afterwards. When you hear my conversation with John right now, you'll understand why this was enough to get me to get out of bed and leave my house at 11 at night, something I would never normally do, and go to one of his events. And we'll also discuss how you can start doing these types of events. And really, it has changed John's life. It might change your life. And enjoy. Where This is all about how John turned himself into a massive influencer because of this idea of an interesting way of creating novelty through social connection. And why, because I knew about his dinners, it was enough to get me to get up and get dressed and go to one of his dinners. So enjoy. John Levy, I feel like I've known you forever, but let's let's talk about for, first off, before we talk about your your new book, you throw these incredible dinners where you get the most amazing, and I should say famous, that's not a key thing, but like mm-hmm. I went to one of your dinners and it was the guy there was a guy performing afterwards who does the bark and what's it, who let the dogs <laughs> let out? The dogs out. Yes. And then he does the bark for us. And like, that's the, like, you have all sorts of interesting people from every angle of life. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from your website. Uh, uh, Eliza Schlesinger, who's a, a world famous, great comedian. I love her. Um, she says, normally when a strange man, that means you normally when a strange <laughs> man invites me to dinner in a strange home, I decline. But I like all of my dinner mates that evening was inspired by John's, unshakable curiosity about humans and how we form bonds. It is in the pursuit of those answers that John is able to set the table scientifically, mentally, and of course, literally 
for strangers to engage in thoughtful, meaningful, and in many cases, life-altering conversations, Eliza Schlesinger. But it's not all strangers in the sense that a lot, these are all very influential people and famous people and well-known people that you wanted to get to know and that you wanted mm -hmm. them to know each other, which is part of what the, the gift here of being influential is you give influence to others and that makes you more influential in a weird way. But your book is about this, about it's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. Everybody, these, every other person calls themselves an influencer these days. But you, John Levy, <laughs> you're an influencer and you connect all the influencers. Like influencers should know you and know your your skills and techniques. You gave a popular TED talk. You're, you have this book. You are, again, I'll say the Thank title. You. You're invited. Uh, uh, is the title and the subtitle is The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence by John Levy. Uh, we've known each other five, six years. Uh, yeah, we I, met at, I think, Mastermind Talks. Oh, yeah, Mastermind Talks. I would say in 2014, I think. Sounds about right. And yeah. then we ran into each other a few weeks later at AJ Jacobs, uh, the World Family Reunion. Yes. Oh, that's right. And even before we met, I remember Tucker Max said, you got to meet this guy, John Levy. You got to go to one of his dinners. And we have t a thousand mutual friends. For sure. Uh, I became good friends with some of the people I met at your house. And so, okay, tell me about your invited. Obviously, you, 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 you summarize how what is an influencer and mm -hmm. how does it, how does one cultivate influence? I'm not sure. I think your technique is very special because it's very giving and sincere and authentic. And I think some techniques are not as authentic, but I want to hear your perspective. What, first off, first of all, thank you so much. That's uh, James. That's a really kind description of it. And uh, I'm super, super flattered. So I think you, you've hit on something really important, which is that, most people talk about influence. They're talking about having a lot of fans. Yes. I don't actually care about that that much because let's be honest, most of the influence that we really care like about the idea of being able to have an impact on a person or an outcome is on really different things. Like I want to get my kid into a really good school. I want that kind of influence. Or I want a client to see the world through my perspective so that we can work on a really great project. Right? It's not about being famous. Influence is simply about having an effect on the things that we care about. And that could be a social cause, or that could be, you know, getting a date with somebody that you really <laughs> like. But but right. let me ask you this. So part of that is society does uh, put an undue, uh, maybe an, an irrational value to, well, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many oh, sure. Instagram followers, TikTok followers? People make money off of because of the number of followers they have. But I think you take a different view of that, which is basically what have you kind of what what value have you given back to society should mm -hmm. should be more correlated to influence? And you certainly have created a lot of value. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I actually measure it. And, and I think what you're pointing to is that when I look at somebody influential, I ask, does the industry really respect them? Do they have uh, either thought leadership? Do they hold like an important position, like uh, they're the CEO, CMO of a company? Or do they have previous success? So we look at somebody like you, right? Regardless of the podcast and your audience, which some people might say, oh, you have X number of followers. That's wonderful. You've become a media outlet in addition to everything else. But you've also had previous success, right? You've built companies. You've earned your stripes. People really respect that. And so in the process, you developed influence. Right now, regardless of if uh, 
like if, if you built a double click and sold it, regardless of if you did anything else, people would say, wow, that's really impressive. That took skill and you had to really develop yourself for that. Those are the types of people I'm, I look to connect with. Yeah, so can I, like, it's almost like in, your, in that sense, it's not, very pl- it's not a very pleasant process to become influential oh, yeah. because in the category you describe, which matches a lot of my podcast guests or maybe mm-hmm. to a tiny extent myself, it's a trial by fire. Like mm-hmm. I've been miserable most of my life because of starting businesses, because of trying to get good at things. I mean, I've tried to manage that a little better in the past 10 years, mm-hmm. but it's really, I don't know how it is for everybody, to be honest. I shouldn't talk for them, but it's really brutal. It's a trial by fire. I, I First of all, I really commend your honesty on this because there's this absurd kind of cultural concept that like, oh, if I'm pursuing something that I like, it's going to be easy and to wake up every day and be passionate and I'm going to be living my best life. No, being an entrepreneur is really freaking hard. Yeah, and like, oh my gosh. And the fact is that the people who've earned their status, right? You don't become an Olympian because it's easy. You become an Olympian because it's hard. And those people have really earned their way. It's, is it possible to be influential without earning status? Sure, there's occasionally things like being born into royalty and things like that. Or, or but okay, but then there's the TikTokers who get like, Two million followers overnight, mm-hmm. and so, I'm not. I'm not jealous. I'm not saying this out of that they shouldn't be influenced or that I'm jealous or whatever. It, that's just a different type of influence, and they are influential. Sure. Yeah. the The interesting thing is that in the TikTok case, what they've become is a micromedia outlet, right? They're essentially they have the same pressures as Vogue does. They have to produce content and they have to feed their audience in order to keep them engaged. If they stop doing any of that, they lose their status. Now, that's a little bit different than like once you've won the Nobel Prize, everybody's like, oh, that's a Nobel laureate, right? You've earned your, <laughs> your stripes. Once you've like been, I don't know, the mayor of New York, you've been the mayor of New York. And everybody right? hates you because you were a lousy it, mayor. Exactly. <laughs> because nobody's ever going to live up to the expectations. Yeah. So I have a ton of respect for content producers, right? It's really hard to keep producing over time. It's just different than the kind of influence that, most of us really want. And, and here's what's interesting. When we look at the predictors of the things that we care about, so let's say business success, you can, according to Paul Jayzak, who's this famous researcher who studies oxytocin, that bonding chemical that are famous from childbirth and when you hug people, it gets released. If you look at his research, he found that you can track company stock value, employee sick days, and profitability to the level of oxytocin people's sense of connection or belonging. Similarly, if we look at longevity, if you want to live a long life, the greatest predictors aren't like meditating every day and, I don't know, eating organic. Number two was strong social ties. And number one was social integration, being a part of the community or connected. So when we look at influence, the ability to have an impact, and we look at these things that we care about, like business success, or we look at longevity, we see that it all ties to the same thing. It's who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of belonging or community that we share. And so if we can become experts at those three things, then the only limitation on our influence is what we want to do with it. And that's what the book's really about. It's how does somebody with no like background, 
like I'm the child of immigrants. I, you know, I didn't graduate top of my class or anything like that. I was not really remarkable in any way, shape or form. I was nice and I was good at my work. Uh, but I managed to connect with the most influential people in our culture, not because I have anything special about me, but because I learned to understand how people behave and what actually engages them and what causes them to connect. And from that, they were able to build relationships with each other and with me. And so let, let, let's go back to the beginning, because I think a big part of your story is, of course, these these influencer dinners that you had. Mm -hmm. And I think you learned a lot of what's in the book through these dinners, obviously. Like, what what was the genesis of that? Can other people start doing it and doing what you did? Like, how can other people make use of kind of these ideas and not necessarily, like you say, it's not necessarily so that they could be appreciated by famous people or, or mm -hmm. all these dinners, but to do what they want to do with, with, you know, the community. Oh, for sure. So the, the, to answer your first question, absolutely. Anybody can apply these ideas. And that's what was the basis of the book, which is that if you need a PhD to become successful, then it doesn't, it's not a universal strategy for success. Right. I totally agree with that. And so like I was thrown if, out of graduate school, so I have to agree with that. Were you really? Yeah. What were you studying? Computer science. Oh wow. That sounds brutal. Just yeah. getting a PhD in computer science sounds brutal. Uh so I didn't have any of those like higher education status markers or anything like that. I needed to figure out what would make a difference for me. And there was this incredible study uh that came out, I think it was the mid two thousands. And the researchers were looking at the obesity epidemic. And what they found shocked people. Most people are used to thinking about obesity as something that affects an individual. It's non-communicative. It's not like a cold. If you have a cold, it can spread from person to person. But what they found is that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. That's so, that's so interesting because it's, it's the, I, I, I wrote about this once a long time ago that, and I didn't know the research, so I was just guessing, but not only the, you know, there's that cliche that you're the average of the five people you spend your most time mm -hmm. with, but since they're the average of the five people they spend time with, you're kind of the average of the 25 people you're five <laughs> spend yeah, yeah. time with and on and on, like less and less for each concentric circle, but it all mm -hmm. reverberates back. I think that's actually a really great way to describe it. It's, and what's interesting is this stuff is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits. Now, what I'm not doing when I say this is like trying to shame anybody for their life choices or eating habits. What, what I'm simply pointing out is that so much of our life is spent trying to fix things that, uh, and beating ourselves up for it not working out. Right. So I used to like set an alarm for 6 a.m. to go to the gym because that's what I thought healthy people do. And then I'd hit snooze so many times I'd miss my workout and beat myself up for not fulfilling on that goal. Instead, what I realized was I should just become friends with really incredible athletes, people that it's part of their lifestyle to exercise. So instead of maybe, I don't know, eating an excessively large meal and drinking, I'd spend my Saturday brunch time, working out, going on a run with them. And then it, part, it naturally becomes part of my habits and my life. 
And the same thing would be true about my finances. I was heavily in debt. I had taken out a bunch of student loans to go to NYU, and uh, I was still trying to figure out my career path. And I thought maybe if I became friends with a bunch of people who were really effective at managing their money responsibly, those habits will rub off on me. And so I got curious what actually causes people to connect. And I would get the worst advice ever, which is you need to network. Now, James, have you ever been to a networking event? Unfortunately, yes. And yeah. you even mentioned my category of person in, in your book and in your talks and everything. I'm the most awkward introverted person, which doesn't mean I'm not shy, by the way. Mm -hmm. I'm just awkward. I, I get my energy by myself and I'm awkward in that. I don't know. I'm not just suave and cool. I'm, <laughs> just, I'm just awkward. And again, I'm, I go up to people and introduce myself. I have no issues with that at all. But people think introverted and shy are the same thing. They're not. Oh, they're it's completely just, different. Yeah. yeah. So so you could be extroverted and shy and introverted and, and not shy at all. But mm -hmm. Yeah, so so networking events are no good for me. So I actually, I think it's really great that you mentioned that. Uh, just for the people who are listening, introversion, although it doesn't have like a clear definition, the general descriptor that people give to it is that, like you said, James, you get energy from your time to yourself. Now, shyness is a fear of being judged by others for your social actions. And so people who are shy will self-impose a restriction of social interaction, which is very different. The other end of that spectrum is people who just don't know when to shut up and things get really awkward because they say things that they just shouldn't. Um, but either way, the point is it's the difference between building up a muscle and not even wanting to interact because you just don't enjoy it. Yeah, that's a good way to separate it. Yeah. The interesting thing about networking events is that not only does everybody hate them, <laughs> They literally, on an other-than-conscious level, feel dirty for participating. There's research by Francesca Gino from uh, Harvard Business School, and quite literally, people feel the desire to wash after in implicit associations. Yeah, that's very true. Here, here's what's wild, though. They did the same experiment when talking about creating friendships, and people don't feel that. So if I say, hey, let's go to a networking event, and I say, hey, Let's go meet some people that I think you'll become friends with. One feels dirty. The other one feels really exciting, depending on if it seems like a natural setting to actually make those friends. Can I ask you a question? And this is, I'm just really curious about this because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Mm -hmm. What's a friend? I think that that's a, a, a really tough thing to define, uh, especially after Facebook. So when Facebook created the friend, I think it actually redefined the term. So a friend, I think, traditionally was seen as somebody who is a close social tie, somebody that had a, I don't know exactly how much, but you were willing to be vulnerable with them, meaning that you were willing to share something with them. And there, as a byproduct, there was a base level of trust. When Facebook created the friend, then people that you'd meet once at a party never talked to again, and couldn't really remember how you connected with them, became a friend. And so I think it devalued the status. Yeah. I can tell you this. A University of Chicago, I, I believe it's them, does an annual large-scale study asking a whole slew of questions to Americans. In 1985, they asked something, which was, 
How many friends, close friends, besides family, do you have? And the answer was just about three. 19 years later. Yeah, this is in 1985. Mm -hmm. 2004, it was down to just about two. Now, mind you, Facebook had just come out. It's not like social media had destroyed society, right? And the question was why? And it seems what's really likely is that we've valued moving for work or after school and changing jobs a lot more. And as a byproduct, people are resetting their social circles more often. And so we're losing our social ties. And so as much as we like to blame social media and things like that for our loneliness, it's probably more just that it's become more and more acceptable to focus on work than social structures. Well, well let me ask you a question. How many, well, so, so first, there's still the, the question of what's a friend, but second, mm-hmm. how many friends does, does one, should, should one have? Is, is three a bad answer? I don't know if it's a bad answer. First of all, I think it depends on how introverted and extroverted you are. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was Brene Brown who described it this way. Uh, you want at least one person you can kind of count on if there's a problem, right? Like somebody to pick up the kids. Someone that you can trust with your secrets. And someone who, uh, is it like you can cry to or vent to? And if you have those things, then you're probably in decent shape. Uh, Because then when there's a problem, you know you can turn to people. You're either going to be crying to somebody, calling them for a favor, or, you know. Uh, And I think that those are really important structures. The, The interesting thing, though, is that that longevity study kind of demonstrated that maybe friendship is really important, but not as important as actually being part of a community. Mm. And I think that that's a really interesting observation because then it's more about belonging. It's feeling like you are part of something that is headed in a direction that you appreciate and care about, that you, through your participation, you're going to become better or you're taken care of and that you have an impact on it. So like, yeah, I guess, cause you know, in a, in a kind of evolutionary sense or tribal sense, you know, your, your tribe, your community kept you alive. If you weren't part of a community, the lions would eat you. You, you had yeah. nobody to protect you. Think about it now. Like if the worst punishment we have besides death, right. Is either exile or solitary confinement. It is removal from society. It is saying, you are so bad that I will not let you have contact with another human being. Mm -hmm. And when people are put in solitary confinement for serious lengths of time, it exacerbates literally every mental condition a person can have, like schizophrenia, depression, everything. We are just not built to be alone. We don't function well when we are. And so I... I'm with you in totality. Like for us to survive or for us to enjoy life, even <laughs> we need other people. This is kind of setting the framework for your, you know, what became these famous mm-hmm. dinners, which then became your, your book. But what happened next? So I, I come across this research and I'm like, okay, instead of just trying to connect with people like one off, what I actually want to do is bring people together so they can connect with each other. Frankly, I'm like, sure, I'm a fine human being, but I'm nowhere going to be near as interesting as other interesting people if I bring them together, right? The advantage is that 
I get like a bit of a halo effect from it. So I started trying to understand what will cause people to connect and what causes them to build trust. And the things that actually cause us to connect or build trust are not what we think they are. It's, I'm not going to like, James, if I want you to trust me, I'm not going to accomplish that by winning you over with a bunch of gifts. You don't need any more junk. You don't need another awkward business dinner for me to take you out on. Very true. Instead, it turns out that the exact opposite works if I want you to trust me. It's called the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect states that you disproportionately care about your Ikea furniture because you had to assemble it. So anytime you put effort into anything, you actually care more about it. It's why you had mentioned your children earlier. It's why we care about our own children because we had to stay up late with them and help them with their homework and we worried about them. And because we invested that effort, we care about them. And that's why adopted children are loved just as much. Yeah. And so my objective became not to win people over by gifting them. I also didn't have much money or any money for that matter. I was in debt. <laughs> Instead, I wanted to figure out a way to get them to invest effort into each other. And for them to even notice me, I realized I needed three things. The first was I had to give without any expectation of anything in return because really important people, everybody's after them for something. They want something. And so if I just came after them and made a request, like, will you meet me for coffee? They're not going to want that. The second is I had to do something novel, something that stood out as different. Because if I invited you to another like casino themed fundraiser or another tech conference, nobody cares. Like people just want their time with their family, their friends. They don't need another to do that's boring. So whatever it was that I did had to stand out as completely different than anything else they've ever done before. And the third characteristic that I really focused on, it's the novelty and the curation. And so if you can find an environment that's already curated, people spend a fortune on it, which is why people go to things like mastermind talks and spend, I don't know, what is it, like eight grand? Or TED is like $10,000 or Davos is a quarter million Wow, Davos is a quarter million dollars just to go? I think so. I think if you're an executive at a major company, that's how much they're spending. And maybe they have like a $50,000 ticket. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I don't play in those numbers. So it's not really an option for me. But the, the interesting thing about that is that people are happy to pay for it. And at Davos, it's like it's sub-zero temperatures and you're standing in the snow, like hoping to bump into, I don't know, uh, Andrea Merkel's <laughs> like it's it's a ridiculous scenario that really exists for, because of the curation. Listen, I don't go to TED because of the talks, right? They're nice. I go to TED because of the people who are there that I love seeing or want to meet. You could watch the talks online. It's the novelty and the curation that brings me there. Yeah. And, and here's the interesting thing about novelty. Uh, there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center. And when we trigger it, it actually causes us to feel a desire to explore and understand. So, so like, uh, give me an example of how this is triggered, maybe even in mild ways, oh, sure. like a, perhaps on a daily basis. Like, I understand 
that there's big, exciting things one can do mm-hmm. that trigger it. But like, what, what's our, what are simple ways to trigger it? So a simple way to trigger it is a surprise. So like if I create a situation where you know something is coming, you will want to explore and understand it. So if I say, oh, I'm taking you out to a really cool place for dinner. Now you're getting curious. You don't know where it is. You don't know what it is. That gap in your information, that novelty, that unsettling actually makes you want to explore and understand it. Similarly, if just something simple and novel, anything that's kind of remarkable, right? So if, uh, if every Tuesday you eat, I don't know, lasagna with a family, and then I take everybody out to dinner, that is new or novel, especially if it's at a new restaurant. Now, don't ever confuse novelty with good, right? right. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it's absolutely memorable. It absolutely right. stands out as something worthy of trying to understand. And so when we design our events, we design them to be completely different than anything else out there. I'll give you kind of like a fun example if you want. So the dinners, uh, and just for the listeners to know how they're designed, we invite 12 people at a time. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. Then we give them a problem. The problem is that they have to cook dinner together over the course of less than an hour. And either the dinner will be finished and they could eat or nobody's going to get to eat. So we split up into teams and we work together. We finish the dinner. We sit down to eat and then everybody plays a game to guess what everybody does. And then they find out that it's a Nobel laureate and eight-time Olympian, a, you know, editor-in-chief of a magazine, someone like James. And uh, what ends up happening is that in that discovery, in that novelty of both the activity and the people that we're surrounded by, relationships are formed. And you can see, because they're cooking together, there's that IKEA effect. There's that joint effort that they're putting in. Mm. Now, you could literally do anything and make it more novel or engaging. So in your case, what's something you really love that's, that could be a social activity? I don't know. This is why I'm introverted. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a hard time sometimes. I like my friends, but it's, sometimes it's hard hanging out as a group. I don't know what to do. Mm. So I don't know how to make it novel. Let me ask you a question. Do you like walking? Do you like baking? Do you like, uh, uh, is there an exercise? I like playing games. I like playing oh, perfect. in a game, card games. I love it. Okay. So I actually think that games nights are a phenomenal activity, right? Everybody always is like, oh, let's do dinner parties. I, this is going to sound really funny. I actually don't like dinner parties. I enjoy being around people, but I think the structure of a dinner party is a little weird because you're stuck physically between two people and i don't know if you're going to want to talk to them and so not a huge fan but what i do like is anything that the activity takes off the social pressure from our interactions Mm. so when we're playing a card game james i can also be really awkward and not know what to say and so the game itself functions as a social catalyst i can stay quiet and play the game or we can also have a conversation. But it's not awkward to stay quiet while you're playing a game because you're playing the game. And so I'm a huge fan of, of things like, here's a, a novel activity. You can run a weekly, monthly board games night. And you have each time the game change, 
but the people that you invite are all people that you are, find really impressive and interesting, right? They're all former uh, podcast guests. You invite six at a time so you don't overwhelm yourself with too big of a crowd. Six is also a nice number because if somebody has to cancel last minute, you're, you're at five, right? It's still somebody, a group that you can fit around a table. And now the question is, how do we make it a little bit novel? Is it that the guests have to bring a game and you vote on which game? So it's like a survivor, <laughs> like you have to pitch us. Is it uh, that everybody has to bring a meal? So it's potluck and you all get to enjoy food while you're doing it. Uh, is it that you all suggest games and then blindly somebody picks it out? So that in itself becomes a game. Uh, whatever it is, you can create an entire process that makes it completely different. I know people who've hosted cocktail events based on, have you ever heard of the one word essay? I think it was like Harvard or something used to pick a word and give people three hours to write about it. And so this woman would host a wine and cheese event. Each person was told that they have to bring a two minute story on a one word and it would be like hope. And then the 10 people there would all share their stories while they're drinking and, and having cheese. I love that. And so you can see that was a really simple way to add novelty to something that could be really just like kind of banal, right? Like wine and cheese. Yay. I mean, like I love cheese. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but the activity itself actually carries all the weight of the social interaction. So, and what triggers in the brain? You said you mentioned the some oh, the center. S that... SNVTA. It's the major novelty center. Mm -hmm. So what happens is now that the structure of the event, now that what you're inviting people to has a difference, is different than other things, they'll notice. And in that would actually trigger a desire to to participate. Now, it's not for everybody. And that's okay. The objective isn't to connect with every human being. It's to connect with the type of people who want to participate in the activities you care about. And so, yeah, so that leads to when you first, I mean, obviously your influencer dinners have, have grown and oh, yeah. you have like, like Nobel laureates and <laughs> yeah. all sorts of people. But like, how did you get started? How did you get the initial people to respond to you not not that this is a requirement for oh no no like I, again it's it's also good advice for just hanging out with friends um but how did you get these uh, initial dinners going so the first dinners were people who were like cool and did impressive things but i wasn't hosting nobel laureates i didn't know them it wasn't until like the fifth or sixth dinner that like guests really started getting a bit more impressive so i uh it turns out that and i just would go to like dinner parties and events. And I talk about this kind of crazy dinner that I host and people would say things like, Oh my God, you should totally invite this person and then take me aside and introduce me to them. Or they'd recommend somebody and I would take down their names and then I'd try to figure out what their email address was. And I'd write these cold emails and some of them were just awful, but like I got better over time. I learned to like keep things super short and bullet point the important ideas so that people pay attention. A very Like what would you write? What would you bullet point? Oh, uh, we'd bullet point things like the structure of the dinner, right? 12 people are invited, no talking about career. Uh, we will cook dinner together. There are no expenses. I cover everything. This is off the record. So like I made it very clear. And then I also added a frequently asked questions at the bottom of the email. 
that was optional and make sure that there were dates and say alternate dates and would you like to join? Please let us know either way. Uh, and, you know, at this point, I've hosted 228 dinners across 10 cities in three countries. So it's, you know, it's really optimized. We built out an entire custom platform just to manage invitations and events and everything. Then we also wanted a way, you know, we talked about this briefly, that that the concern is really giving people a sense of belonging. It's not just meeting somebody, but having them feel like they're connecting to your other friends so that they can stay in your orbit. And so we launched, uh, and you mentioned this, our salon series. And at our salons, we usually have about 60 to 100 people come, and they're almost all former dinner guests or like their best friend or something like that. And we surprise people with three really respected speakers. So it might be Bill Nye, the science guy. We might have one of the former Roots perform. We might have a talk by Larry Wilmore or, you know, uh, the Paralympian uh, Amy Purdy or, you know, so on and so forth. And it's people who are really inspiring and impressive and far more impressive than I am. And people get to mingle before and after and have cocktails. Um, but you'll notice even that, it just requires a living room. It's because I didn't have the, the money to like hire bartenders or expensive liquor. In fact, we ask people to bring a bottle. Um, and that's kind of the, the beauty of it is that people expect that engaging with others is expensive. And it doesn't need to be. Because I think what we really want is this experience of belonging and to be surrounded by interesting people. And that doesn't require money, especially now that we have the internet. <laughs> you can email anybody. And so, so what it like sort of built up. Oh yeah. And like very slowly, like the early days, I think I took six months between the first and second dinner and then three months to the third dinner. And then it kept accelerating. And now I was been doing them like before the pandemic five times a month, which means, and let me tell you this, uh, this is really funny. We had a well-known journalist an author come to one of these dinners and she said, I was expecting a phenomenal meal and decent company. I got the exact opposite. The meal is terrible. Like it's 12 people who don't know how to cook and we make burritos. Like, and I do this, if I'm doing this five or six times a month, that means I have terrible burritos for dinner. One out of every, I don't know, five meals. Uh. It's awful. But, I, you know, for them, it's novel and new and different. And that's great. So I often just skip dinner. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. 
and I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. 
You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let's say someone's listening to this. Mm -hmm. They're not going to go and invite, you know, Charles Barkley and Paul Krugman and oh, that's so funny. Know, Dave Chappelle mm -hmm. to their next dinner. Um, but they want to, they want to start feeling part of a community and, and they want to, they want to feel, and I guess people do want to feel influential. Mm -hmm. They want to feel like they're relevant to their community. That triggers dopamine. And again, in this tribe way, it feels like you're moving up in the tribe. So there's less chance of being cast out from the tribe. Sure. And so that's one benefit of influence or of, of not influence, but being influential. Mm -hmm. And so, so what, what should, what should first steps be? First step is, um, is to figure out what scale you want to reach people at, right? So if you're more introverted or you're shy and you're not ready to like host a whole slew of people, then it's okay to host like two or three or invite two or three people to connect with. I think that if you're doing something that's like a dinner party or even though I'm not a huge fan of dinner parties, 10 to 12 is, is a, a great number. The second thing is that, you know, the dinners are really something I invented and it lives with kind of my ethos. But if you want to do something, then you should get your own thing, whatever that is. If you really like hiking, do a hike, right? If you like cycling, do that. The key is that when you hit like the seventh time that you're doing it, unless it's an activity you actually enjoy, you're going to dread the activity. Mm. So in your case with the board games night, if you really love board games, commit to doing like five nights, spread it out over whatever frequency you want. I recommend a faster frequency in the early days just so that you get a lot of practice in. So you say, okay, every other week for the next 10 weeks, I'm going to host uh, a board game night. And then you simply try it the first time, see what happens, right? And at a small scale of like five people or whatever it is, or six people, you can usually just text a bunch of people and get that many confirmations. Hmm. Uh, and then once you've fallen into a pattern, play with it. Optimize the invitation. Ask the people who've attended to recommend other people. Ask them to recommend what you could change about the format that would make it more fun. Find out uh, what new games are coming up. And then ask yourself, okay, if you could meet anybody, who would it be? What types of people? Not specific person. Is it people that you want to have as clients? Great. Then maybe you should start inviting those people. Once you have enough experience running it, that it's it's actually functional, that people are enjoying themselves. I like the idea also, there's something in the 
no discussion of careers, no mention of last mm-hmm. names. Now, people in some cases must know who the other is. Like, let's say you invited Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to know. He's, but I will tell you a few things. One, when I have celebrities, I ask them to go by their middle names. And they are almost never recognized. Because when somebody is out of context, it's very hard to recognize them. That's, so, that's interesting. Like, do you think if you invited Woody Allen, he'd be hard to recognize? I I don't know how people would react if I invited Woody Allen. All right, if you invited um, uh, 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 Scarlett Johansson, you think she'd be hard yes, to recognize? I, I think she'd be very hard to recognize. Bradley Cooper, he's very distinctive. You think he'd be hard to recognize? Um, if he went by his middle name, there's a good chance. Let me explain for two reasons why. The first is I had Deepak Chopra come. He went by his middle name. Nobody recognized him. In fact, one person thought for a second maybe it was Deepak, and then he's like, no, I'm just doing that thing where people from another race all look the same. I can't be him. <laughs> the, the second is that um, the Olympic medalist in women's wrestling who won a gold spends so much of her time in training that unless it's like an A-plus celeb, right? Like, it's really doubtful that she'll know who, who they are. Yeah. Uh, the Nobel laureate... Uh, Let's take, uh, you mentioned Paul Krugman. If you think Paul Krugman is sitting around watching like Orange is the New Black and knows the entire cast, I don't know if that's actually the case. Like, I have no idea. He's obsessed with Orange is the it's, New Black. It's, you know? Yeah, it's, it's his thing. He writes about it all, all the time. Uh, yeah. So The economics of jail, of women's jail. Precisely. Uh, so the, I, you'd be surprised. So like I've had uh, Malcolm Gladwell went by Timothy. And one person who knew him absolutely recognized him. And the rest of the people there, I think maybe one other. And then we were 12 people, right? Uh, Trevor Noah, I think two or three out of the 12 knew who he was. Uh, maybe, maybe more, but nobody let on. And judging by the lack of awkwardness in the situation, like people start acting really awkward when they're a bit starstruck. Uh, yeah, like I didn't sense an incredible awkwardness, but we also had like, and how'd you get like Trevor Noah to come to dinner? And I know you've described your process, mm-hmm. but like, why would he come to your dinner? Uh, he, first of all, he's a really curious person, uh, and mm-hmm. incredibly intellectually driven. Right. Uh, and he was originally introduced to me because I was on the membership committee of Soho house. So somebody recommended that we meet and I said, absolutely. I'd be happy to, I just need to meet him for a few minutes. And we actually ended up hanging out for an entire like evening talking. Um, and it was great. It was super, super smart. We talked about science and things like that. And then we actually kept both bumping into each other. We did some work stuff together and all that. And so we ended up, I said, Hey, do you want to come to a dinner? He's like, I'd love to. And fortunately I caught him in the early days before he like really, really blew up as the host of the daily show. And so he actually had time. Because the biggest challenge we had was that his touring schedule was just bonkers difficult. So uh, Trevor is in that category of people that I don't really pursue. And the reason is that if I get introduced to them, sure, I'll invite them. But their lives are so big that I'm, I'm too random to show up, right? Their agents, their managers, and their assistants will generally filter out a random email. But we were introduced through... Uh, through the writers of the show. So I came in through like, there's this, it's the halo effect, right? Because 
Trevor trusted the writers and the writers trusted me, then he ended up through recommendation trusting me. I find a lot of your stuff and, and, and I'm, again, I'm trying to apply this to, to everybody who's trying to build influence in their community. Um, a lot of it's through word of mouth mm. mm-hmm. and you, and you encourage that you ask people to, you know, like you say, you ask people to introduce you to other people who would be good for this dinner. And so they get very excited. I think to be, to be honest, even before we mm-hmm. met, uh, I think it was the go between, between you and me was Tucker Max was telling each other, Oh, you should meet John Levy. You got to meet to John <laughs> Levy. I'm going to introduce you to John Levy. And so, you know, it's someone who is a good friend of mine who was then saying, you have to meet this person. And so word of mouth is very effective. And I, I, think, and I it's think it's the most effective. You... I, I'm in full agreement. The issue is that it's very hard to scale. Um, so I'd say probably two out of the 12 people at each dinner come from word of mouth. And then 10 or nine, because I'm the 12th person, um, comes from cold communication. And But that cold communication has a lot of proof of concept in it. So we add my TED Talk, which talks about it and has photos. And I add New York Times link that covered uh, it on the cover of the style section. And so I add a lot of proof. And then every so often I get people being like, but how do we know you're the real John Levy? And I say, first of all, there's like 10,000 of me in That's New York. That's a question I get all the yeah. time. I ask people to dinner and people say to me, but how do I know you're the real John Levy? <laughs> so it even happens to me when I say I'm John Levy. Um, and let's be honest, you look like you could be John Levy, right? Like it's, you're your you're ugly older brother. <laughs> but that's that's the funny thing. I've, I once uh, hosted a salon at my house, and as a joke, I invited a collection of John Levy's to be in, in the house at the same time. So they were all guests, <laughs> and there was a, a whole bunch of us. And I like the idea that somebody would walk up to them and say, do you know John Levy? And they're like, I am John Levy. And they're like, you don't look like your photo. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. That reminds me, a friend of mine has an SMS group. You know, it's a whole group mm-hmm. of people that SMS together. They all have the same phone number, just in different area codes. And that's their Are you only. Serious? That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I'm I'm so writing this down. I'm curious, like But it's the same type of idea as like it's like it's like um um Kurt Vonnegut has a name for that in Cat's Cradle. Um and I forget what it is now, but a group of people who are bonded together by something that's completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's uh in sciences it's called implicit egotism. So I did this uh, really large scientific study. Uh, it was 400, I think, and 21 million potential matches pe- between people on the dating app Hinge. And we asked what actually causes them to start dating. And the most common thing is the more similar they were, the more likely they were to date, down to their initials. So if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. Wow. That is so interesting. And that, and yet makes total mm-hmm. sense. Like, even though, even though it's irrational, it makes total sense. It's one of those things that you get it as soon as you hear it, even though it should make no yeah, sense. It's, but we are so, there's this, this story is in the book and I think you'll get a, a super big kick out of this. In 1911, this guy walks into the Louvre on a Monday. It's closed. They're doing like photos and cleaning. Walks into the Renaissance section finds a random painting, a small one, hanging under a bunch of others, rips it off the wall, covers it with his smock, and just walks out with it under his arm. Two days later, it's discovered that the painting is missing, and the city goes crazy. They start posting pictures of it. Newspapers around the world report on it, kind of as a way to 
embarrassed the French government. This is right before World War I. And eventually, three years later, uh, the person tries to sell it, and the story goes viral again, and everybody sees the painting. And the painting is finally uh, returned after it does a tour in Italy where it was recovered and brought back to the Louvre. In the meantime, thousands of people stood in line just to see the empty spot in, uh, on the wall. That's so funny. And this is the reason, the only reason, that any of us have ever heard of the Mona Lisa. Not because it's a great painting, but because of something called the mere exposure effect. It was the most famous painting in the world. More people had seen photos of it than any other painting, right? This is, it, this is way before the internet. This is way before modern printing, right? Like, so people were getting their information through newspapers. And when the world had seen it and it became so familiar, they liked it more. And now it's considered by many to be the greatest painting of all time. But if you actually speak to art critics, they say it's fine, but there's plenty of other da Vinci's works that are considered much better. And so the thing that is most familiar to us is us. And so anything that reminds us of us is generally more trusted or more liked on average, right? I mean, there's certain things I dislike about myself, but what can one do? Even though, even if the things are artificial, like a phone number. Yeah, it's, it's literally anything that's familiar, right? It's, mm. and it's, uh, I mean, like, think about it, right? So Jordan brand clothing, I think makes like 4 billion a year or something like that for Nike. It doesn't make you jump any higher. It doesn't make you play any better. It's just, it, you're familiar with it because Jordan is so famous. So... That's yeah, funny. like if it's not designed by like a team of NASA engineers who will get you to like levitate or something like that, it's just a t-shirt and shorts. But it's so familiar, and it has such a strong association as something positive. We like it. And so, so okay, so I'm in uh, Kansas City, <laughs> Kansas, and I'm listening to this. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not in New York. I don't know Nobel Prize winners and and Olympians and actors and all that. But I like my friends. I'd like to make I'd like to make more contacts in my community, or at least more bonds in my community. Mm-hmm. I want to be a name in my community, influential. Sure. What 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 do I do? And and this has really nothing to do with social mm-hmm. media. I, you know, as you said before, I feel like. This is very true that people should people should earn their status on social media. Now, I shouldn't say should because it is what it is, but the reality is that's that that is the most impressive to me. If someone has the social media because of who they are, not that they become defined because they have a big social media mm-hmm. following. And so so you're in Kansas City, you're you're this guy in Kansas City or this woman in Kansas City. What what are like four or five first steps, best practices they could they could do? So I think the first thing is uh right? How many people do you want to connect with and who? Let's say you want to become, uh, you run a, you own a comedy club, right? Let's say somebody's really interested. And I know it's a different field of comedy, but they want to be really prominent in the comedy scene or like, a, what's that? Uh, improv world. Then you've got a clear group of people that you want to connect with the comedy scene in that environment. So the first thing is, Okay, we know who we want to connect with and whatever the scale is, let's say it's 5, 10, 12 people at a time, whatever it is. I recommend starting small and going big. Otherwise, if people try to do really big stuff, it burns them out and then they don't want to 
host people anymore yeah. or connect. And so then the question is, what's something that you really enjoy, right? So in the comedy world, there's this uh, researcher and author, uh, Peter McGraw. He wrote a book called The Humor Code. He figured out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've read that I, book. I thought it was fascinating. He essentially developed a, a scientific understanding of what makes something funny. And so he created something called Dilemma Dinners. I think there is what it's called, or Dilemma Day. Each person in a small group of five or six comes with one major problem in their life that they're looking to tackle. And then they sit and eat together and they work through each person's problem and they do take notes and they really get there and in there with people. Now that's a really cool kind of novel format that creates very intimate bonds. It's not a playful format. It's not something that people walk away generally giggling from or, but it will say, give the opportunity to build deep bonds, right? So anybody who opts in for something like that is generally somebody wanting to do some real work and really explore. And so by inviting people five at a time to do this, he gets to draw or develop deep and meaningful relationships and people get to improve their life and develop friendships in the process. So you can see it's novel and different. Now there's a whole bunch of ways that you can go about this. One is meetup.com is phenomenal for, for forming communities. So is joining other meetups and meeting people there and then bringing them into your community or participating and elevating the status of a group that already exists. The second thing you can do is also source people from online communities like Reddit and so on. So if you literally know nobody, you can start with online platforms and then push it into in-person. A company that actually oddly does this very, very well is Pokemon Go, Niantic's game. Like there are all these in-person groups that go around playing together uh, because of this digital platform. And so the key in all of this is what do you actually enjoy doing that you would actually want to do over and over again? Now, I have friends who do things as hikes, which I love the idea of. Literally, they will invite two or three people on a hike. They'll explore a problem or idea, or they'll just talk. And, you know, it's interesting about the, um, like you mentioned, the, the, the one word essay <laughs> people. And now you mentioned the, you know, bring a problem. It sort of feels like then in these cases, you're giving somebody homework to do when they don't even know you and why <laughs> they should go to this thing. Yeah, I you, I, that's definitely the like case. I could just picture inviting someone to some of this and like, oh, James says I have to figure out a problem to talk about. It's like one of my therapists. <laughs> I have to stay, plan this out beforehand. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It, uh, and the format will actually define, will function like a litmus test. Do you remember those tests that we used to have in like earth science class where we'd put a piece of paper in acids or bases and it would quickly give you a result? Mm -hmm. Um so the format will actually define who wants to engage. And the more that you have as a precursor for an experience, the less people will want to participate. But those who make it through will really be dedicated to it. So you always have to balance. It's kind of like... You know, so you can't, you can't be tied to an outcome. You can't be tied to the fact that Malcolm Gladwell is definitely oh yeah, coming to this dinner. That's, that's not going to... I mean, the, the problem is that if you obsess over one specific personality, it's, uh, it's not healthy, especially because in yeah. the business world, for each one of those that you know about, there's a hundred or a thousand others that are kind of lookalikes that can function in the same way. And so yeah. 
if you want proof, look through the Fortune 500 and see how many of those companies you've ever even heard of. And so everybody gets obsessed with like the CMO of one of the big, you know, fang companies. But there's literally 499 other giant companies that you have never heard of. I mean, like once you go past like number 20 or number 30 on the list, it's like cell phone tower construction companies and satellite manufacturers. And like, there's plenty of people for you to connect with in this world. In a world with seven point something billion people, there's more people out there that you could potentially be friends with than you ever want to be friends with. Yeah, that's a really great point. Because again, if you're living in Kansas City, it's not like it's not like you're going to invite the world's comedy community mm-hmm. or Nobel laureates. There might not be any. I mean, there, there probably, probably is at least one in Kansas City. But but here's what's you know. really interesting: there's phenomenal academics from the local universities to connect with, doing really interesting work. Mm. There's probably a Philharmonic. There's probably a comedy scene. There's definitely an art scene that has major leaders in it. There's phenomenal tech there's everything but but you're able to get these people because of the social proof like you attach a new york times article mm-hmm. a ted talk but like in the, the guy in kansas in the city first years you're saying start yeah, small in the first years yeah. i didn't okay. have any of that i would yeah literally just walk up to people so i started with my friends i'd ask my friends to recommend people and here's what's interesting there are people in each of these groups that are um that are the super connectors and that's going to be your biggest source, right? So here, here's kind of like a funny scenario. Uh, years and years ago, I was uh, looking at some theoretical research around uh, vaccination. This is like before there was a global pandemic. And the question was, what's the most effective way to vaccinate a population? And the, the general strategy, as you know, is vaccinate the elderly or the young, right? coronavirus affects the young less. So that hasn't been a major priority here. But an alternate theory was suggested. And it works like this. Most groups stay to themselves, but there are people who function as bridges across the groups. So the people who are friends with like a whole slew of people are friends with people in the Harley Davidson community and the Iron Man community, right? And normally those communities would not contact each other. So there'd be a very low risk of transmission between them. But it turns out that that super connector functions as a bridge across multiple communities. And if you can vaccinate that person, you could prevent things from jumping. So this alternate theory suggested that if we actually find out who the super connectors are in a society, vaccinate all of them, we're going to be far more protected. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's like an interesting theory. The question became, how do we actually find these people? And it turns out to be really easy. The super connectors know everybody. So all I have to do is say, James, who's the most connected person you know? Or the top three most connected? John Levy. (laughs) Thank you. And besides John Levy, it's maybe it's Tucker Max. Maybe it's, I don't know who it is, right? Uh, But now we get something interesting. If you ask a bunch of people who the most connected people are, One is those people tend to want to meet everybody. So they'll be really open to an introduction. And those connectors are the ones that are going to be your biggest source of potential friends. Because they're the ones that tend to gather or connect with others often. And so the easiest strategy is just to ask around on who the most connected people are. 
connect with them and make sure to keep really good relationships with them. And then invite them potentially to co-host one time and they'll bring all the people or whatever it is. Yeah, and it seems like that that's just it. You give them some sort of psychological ownership mm-hmm. of like they feel people feel invested in having bringing good people to your yeah. dinner. I have a, a friend um who runs an event called uh Good Eggs. And the way it works is it has nothing to do with status. It is just 12 good people. As if it's like a crate of eggs that she personally subjected selected. Oh, I love that. I love that. And idea. so in her world, she'll have, she's a prominent uh, film executive. She'll have like the president of a studio and like an intern at the same dinner. And she doesn't have a problem with them because they're all great people that she personally selected. And I'll be honest, there's something really like recently I've been spending time with my nieces and nephews and uh, my nephew, one of them has decided to go to NYU. And so I've invited him to a few very small gatherings that uh, for, I have a few friends who are vaccinated and they love meeting him. There's something really interesting that when people reach a certain age, they actually really love meeting like the up and coming generation to see and hear about the world through their perspective. Hmm. And, uh, and I think that there's been some really great research, in fact, about how uh, experienced producers and screenwriters actually really like to partner with young talent because it gives novelty and new perspectives so that their content doesn't get stale. And so uh, something yeah. I've been really kind of curious about is how do we actually play with this now? How do we help Gen uh, Z, which is actually considered the loneliest and most isolated generation, integrate further with people who are more experienced? Yeah, this is so fascinating. You know, my big issue is just getting to know people and getting to know people that I like <laughs> and not necessarily famous or well-known or anything, just just having, a, like you say, a community. And I think this is a good technique for not only having a community, but kind of being the source. I think whatever you do in life, it's always good to at least sometimes try to be the source mm. rather than the invitee being the one and doing the inviting rather than the one reading books in the library, the one writing the books in the library and, and on it, the, rather than the one trying to find a good idea, the one giving a good idea. <laughs> and, and I think, there's something similar happening here and, and you move into a new town. Why wait to be invited to someone else's house for dinner? Invite everyone yeah. else in the, in the town to dinner or whatever. Well, let me ask uh, you a question. I, you're, you're in a new town, right? Where, where are you living these days? Key Biscayne, Florida. I don't even know if I've ever heard of that place, but congratulations. You know what? I never, I never heard of it either. And the first time I ever set foot in here uh, was the day we, the plane sat down and we drove here and it was the first and we went to our the house we were renting and it's the first time we ever saw Kiva's game. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So here's the question to you. Uh as people get vaccinated, and you can also do this digitally, right? I've hosted I don't even know how many games nights on Zoom. And they're super fun. We we invented a game called Discovery. And this is something anybody can do. What we did was we emailed uh 12 people asking them for three fun facts about them. And then uh, we put it into Kahoot, which is like, lets you create a game show. And so it would say things like, uh, Mike, uh, not Mike, this person hitchhiked across uh, Tanzania uh, 
and nobody knew where they were for a week. Uh, is it Steve, uh, Adrian, uh, Tyrone, or uh, or whatever, Sarah? And people have to guess using like a second screen experience. And then you find out if your guesses were right or not. And the person then tells the story of like hitchhiking. But in this way, you're playing a game. People are competing. They're having fun. And you're hearing people's stories in a really natural way. And so it's a really easy way to gather people. It can be done in an hour. It's like a nice length of time that people don't feel like bad if they are not with their family or at work. And it's just a great way to connect. So regardless if it's online right now because, you know, the risk of COVID or if it's in person, what is something, James, you feel comfortable doing to bring people together in your area? You know, one one interesting thing is, and this is just, you know, particular to this community, but everyone who was born here seems <laughs> to still live here. Like they love this oh, wow. town. And so everybody we know here has known each other for at least 40 years. And then we're new. Holy cow. And, and so it's an interesting thing. Can I ask, would you ever feel comfortable asking for one of them to host a welcome party for you? Uh, yeah, that would be. And they ha kind of have, actually. I mean, we've been here enough that, because we were going back and forth for a while, and then we just recently, like, we were, they kind of have done that, and they've been very nice. Very Everybody here is so nice and very gracious. Mm. Um, Must be strange after years in New York. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> It, and and by the way, this is I always make sure I'm not. This is not bashing New York. It's just a different culture. Mm -hmm. Like oh, New yeah. York is, um, people. No, oh, John Levy does this. Malcolm Gladwell does this. You know, so and so does this. So you, so you meet a lot of times because everybody's so busy. You kind of have some pre information before a lot of meetings in New York. And there's yeah. a, and everyone's so scheduled. There's like a limited amount of time. Not that limited, but limited enough. And mm -hmm. here people are just simply friends because they've known each other forever and yeah. they've known each other since third grade. And, uh, so they don't necessarily talk about all the, you know, tell me what you did today. Tell me what you do. Tell me what's happening. Uh, it's uh, how are the kids, how are the grandkids? Yeah. And you know, how's your mother-in-law and, uh, what's happening on mm -hmm. the game tonight? And, you know, so it's like, and also people are very comfortable being quiet because, they're, they've said it all. Yeah, they've said 40 it all. years. Yeah, and I, and I'm I feel weird and or awkward being quiet. Like I feel like, you know, it's it's unusual. For Isn't me. that interesting? So do I. It's uh, I almost feel like I've been holding my breath for too long. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then but then I get uncomfortable. Like I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do a non-New York social interaction. Yeah, it takes I think a while to decompress from it. And and listen, I'm in the same boat as you. I. Uh, I, I probably index high on the, I would rather take action than inaction. And I, there's a lot of people out there who just feel really comfortable sitting and enjoying the view. Yeah. Uh, and so I've just been trying to like piece my way through this and without it being a stress, because I really like the people here, but it's hard for me to, it's just different. Yeah. Um, but, but you've given me a lot of ideas to think about and, uh, and I'm really grateful for that. And so, so John Levy, I, I highly encourage people, of course, to all of these things and more are stories you tell in your book. Uh, you're mm. invited. Uh, let me read the subtitle. I always forget subtitles. 
you are invited the art and science of cultivating influence i hadn't known until i saw this book how, how much you really have dived into the science of this and it, it's yeah i spent years really looking at it it's it's kind of crazy yeah it is it is crazy and it's very interesting because it's a lot of times I find social academic research to be interesting, but not useful. But a lot of that stuff that you were talking about is, is very, it's very useful. So it's, so Thank it's, you. it's interesting, but, uh, John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a pleasure. I'm, I'm super flattered that you had me on. Thank you. Thanks once again. And I will, uh, we'll meet again. We'll talk again soon. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.